Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR Live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the podcast that we lovingly call We're All Gonna Die Radio, um, a key part of the Deep State Radio Network. Uh, I'm thrilled to welcome you on this snowy afternoon in Washington, D.C., and to welcome my partner, Heather Williams, um, who's calling in from Boston. Heather, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. It's snowy here, too. Um, it's cold. Even by Boston standards, it's that time of year where it's just cold. It, it, it's funny how the snow and the cold tend to go hand in hand, so um, glad, glad you're knowing being okay. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm here to help, as always. Um, so we are really thrilled to be joined by two really smart guys who wrote a really interesting article this week that we immediately wanted to invite onto the podcast. Um, those who have been listening to uh, We're All Gonna Die for a while will recognize Paul Sherry's name, who... Um, is uh, Director and Vice President at CNAS, a uh, think tank here in Washington. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Am I right? Vice President, right? Are you moving up the chain? Is there? Yeah, I'm the Executive Vice President and Director of Studies now. At, Ex at Executive Vice President. Security. Yeah, okay. well, so you're, yeah, you're, in any case. You're, you're, your universe is expanding. Well, welcome. Uh, and Michael Depp uh, is also at CNAS and is uh, a researcher there on AI national security issues and is a first timer and we're all going to die. So, Michael, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. No worries. So, uh, uh, rest assured, you you probably won't die on the podcast. So, <laughs> I, I think I really hope so. <laughs> we're we're going to give you a short lease on life. If I ever use that joke and I'm wrong, the podcast is really in trouble. So, you know, liability is not very tight. So, um, I'm going to turn things over to Michael first because I want you basically to explain why you're here. We read this article uh, that you guys put out on War on the Rocks, another great named. Uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, national security outlet. But tell us about the name of the article and what the thesis is. Great. Uh, thanks. So Paul and I kind of uh, have been talking about AI and nuclear integration and nuclear stability for a while. 
um, together, a lot of conversations about it. And so we kind of had this idea of like seizing some of the moment that's been going on in AI with the United States being so forward in its policy statements about how it's going to use AI, how it's going to use automation and how it wants global governance to kind of be achieved um, to suggest some ways that the United States could take some unilateral action to maybe improve global norms around nuclear stability uh, and, and AI integration and automation. Um, so we wrote this piece, uh, AI and nuclear stability for War on the Rocks, where we kind of uh, lay out some of these things that the United States has doing, been doing, you know, uh, Directive 3000.09, which is our, our automation, uh, autom- autonomous weapons policy, uh, AI ethics, they published some AI ethics in 2020, um, and then there's a political declaration in 2023. Um, and most importantly for the nuclear domain, um, in the 2022 Nuclear Posture Review, the United States committed to keeping a human in the loop for all actions critical to informing and deciding to use nuclear weapons. So we wanted to dig a little bit deeper on those and kind of, um, you know, figure out ways we can talk about what that really means. Because, you know, critical to informing is helpful. I know, I understand that we want to keep a human in the loop at all times, but I, I don't know precisely what that means. So Paul and I went through and we suggest some actions the United States can take to improve its messaging, maybe build some norms, and hopefully lead to some sort of international agreement among the nuclear powers to keep automation, uh, keep humans in control of AI, even if they use automation, or humans in control of nuclear weapons, even if they use automation. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically the core of the piece. Um, so in, in a minute, I'll turn things over to Heather to ask, but you know, Paul, let me ask you, because you've obviously been looking at automation and AI across the field. Um, we've talked about this before that last year was like, you know, AI on steroids, like the world discovered that there was a thing called AI and suddenly it's in everything from my uh, nuclear command and control to my breakfast cereal. Um, what's your sense now on how um, integrated automation and machine learning are is already into nuclear command and control, right? Are we sort of at the front edge of this? Are you saying, look, let's let's slow roll this, or are we trying to play catch up a little bit on where AI is in the nuclear command and control system? Well, I think it depends a little bit on what we mean by AI, autonomy, automation, machine learning. Those terms are all very related, um, and I will I will not dive into some you know pedantic thing about the terminology here, but but they mean different things in terms of the sophistication of the technology. So like. GPT-4 is not plugged into nuclear weapons. Like, no, that's not the case. No one's suggesting that that's a good idea. That seems like a really good thing, by the way. Yeah, Yeah, a very good thing. It's not very reliable. So, but, but, you know, is there automation used in nuclear um, operations, nuclear command, control, and communication? Yeah, there has been for decades, in fact. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. There's lots of ways that automation can be used to make systems more reliable and more safe. Um, I think, you know, kind of a, a great example of this in industry is in the commercial airline industry, where airline autopilots have undeniably made air travel much, much safer. Um, and so, so some aspects of automation are already used in a nuclear enterprise and are certainly beneficial. As Michael was pointing out, the, the nuclear posture in 2022 has this really clear policy statement about having a human in the loop and we've seen senior government officials, Jack Shanahan, uh, when he was the head of the Joint AI Center at DOD, uh, stated publicly 
that humans would always be in the loop. But this is new that this is an official policy statement. I think it's really significant. Um, and then kind of the question is, okay, how do, you, how do you put that into practice? Which raises just a lot of actually really tricky issues about human-machine integration. They're actually really complicated. Yeah, if I can, um, if I can jump in, I'd actually like to draw you guys out on that. For anybody who uh, makes the mistake of not reading the War on the Rocks article and only listens to this podcast, uh, they're doing themselves a disservice. But uh, Michael, maybe maybe go to you and can you explain what does human in the loop when it comes to nuclear command and control? What does that actually mean? Like, what are we actually talking about here? Yeah, so the the nuclear posture review says critical to informing and deciding. Um, so I think broadly speaking, the, the tone is clear that a human will always make the decision to press the fire button, that it's not going to be some automated system the whole way up um, through, through the chain of command, some sort of like dead hand system, as you would conceive of it. Um, but there's a, it's a little unclear in terms of like how you operationalize that statement. Um, you know, is it acceptable for you to use you know, autonomous targeting or uh, like target recognition um, in your, you know, nuclear planning structures. Is that a critical action? I would say probably not. Um, but there's a lot of gray area to determine what's critical and what's not and what's not critical, what's just kind of the normal thing we already do. And as, as Paul noted, there's already automation in many of these structures, um, you know, we use bombers, is automate, you know, is, is autopilot on a bomber, using autonomous weapons in their nuclear enterprise. Like, I, I don't think anybody would really say that, but you need to be, we need to be very clear in terms of where can the automation be and where does the human decision have to take place in the chain? And I think also as a very important part of that is the human decision-making can't just be kind of a rubber stamp on an AI decision. The, the system can't say launch and then the human just has to press the button because the computer told it to, told them to. There needs to be real judgment and real thinking behind it. And I think what we tried to draw out is ways in which you can design these systems so that there is a, a functional human machine team where you're relying on the machine for its precision, its speed, but you're relying on the human for real judgment and real context um, in, in these hair trigger, you know, urgent situations where the world is kind of hanging by a thread in the balance. I, I swear, I did not do this because I read the article, but I just happened last night in the snowstorm to go through my uh, YouTube movie library and picked out The Enemy Below. For those of you who don't know, it's one of the greatest submarine movies ever. Um, later this year, we're going to be doing a uh, bracket of greatest submarine movies to see whether Das Boot can be beaten. But in it, there's a fantastic um, monologue by Kurt Jurgens where he's talking about the way uh, submarine warfare was in World War One when the captain would have to do calculations and arithmetic in his head. And he was complaining that in World War II, you would lower the periscope and the periscope would tell you the distance to target. And then you would put that distance into the machine and the machine would generate the code for the torpedo and that they had lost the human element in warfare. So this is in 1957, it's written by a former Navy commander um, that I just ordered online today because I you know, like to get the novel on my hands too. But it shows you that this challenge of keeping humans in the loop and what's the appropriate role for humanity in decisions about life and death is not new by any means, right? This is something we've wrestled with. The challenge is that we're moving now at such incredible speeds. And what I find really fascinating is, as you and Michael, Paul have pointed out, 
the, the multiple administrations have been talking about transparency, talking about normative uh, uh, principles, and talking openly about what's the appropriate role for computers and automation and AI, but how it gets implemented really does matter here. And what I think your article really does is it forces some additional depth of transparency and tries to push the envelope a little bit on exactly how does this get implemented, right? Because it's not autopilot. But the example you use, which I, you know, I can't remember, Paul, whether I stole this from you or vice versa, you know, if, if AI uh, a computer system is generating a recommendation or an alert status that a missile is being fueled in the field, it matters in terms of human psychology whether that alert says uh, missile launch preparation detected or refueling detected, right? It matters whether that is outlined in red or whether it's outlined in green, right? The, the human machine interface here is really challenging. So I'm sort of curious as you think about not just the article, but more broadly, uh, Paul, I guess this is for you, you know, um, as you've been talking to people in the administration, inside the military, do they get this psychology? Are they struggling with it? Or are they in such a, a, a do they feel they're in such a race that those are things they will figure out later? I mean, what's the balance in your mind? How, how are they doing in terms of uh, managing this complex problem? I mean, there is, I think maybe more broadly, how I hear people in the U.S. military talk about AI and autonomy. There's a little bit of this kind of like, like split brain phenomenon where on the one hand, you hear AI is so important. Uh, when he was Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper had told Congress, it's my number one priority. It's, you know, it's in documents at a high level. People, we need to, we need to build AI. We need to rush to it. We need to get ahead of the, the Chinese. And then when you actually talk to warfighters, talk to people in uniform, they're like so skeptical of automation, giving up control, and not necessarily like for a good reason, right? I mean, the, the jobs that we have people doing are complex, they're high stakes, and a lot of automation is brittle. It can be reliable in some settings and then fail pretty dramatically in others. We've had bad examples of this, including in the military space. The Patriot fratricides in 2003, I think an unfortunate case where there's this, this complex set of failures that are not quite easily pinned down to, oh, this widget broke or this human made an obviously dumb error. It's sort of this combination of, well, there was a setting in the machine that we really didn't understand and people weren't trained on it and the way it presented the information. And these human-machine integration failures crop up in lots of industries. They're a challenge in the military as well. And I think what we wanted to highlight in particular with this article is, you know, this policy statement is great. I, I think it's wonderful that the U.S. government has put down in its official policy, we're going to keep a human in the loop for nuclear weapons. Uh, it seems like, frankly, kind of a, a you know bare minimum. We're still thinking about how we <laughs> approach AI okay. and autonomy and to military be fair, systems. It to be fair, it does depend on the human, right? I mean, so <laughs> there's certain <laughs> humans I'm good at having in the loop and others that I'm like, eh, I'm not sure you're my guy, but um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, right. Not any human, not any human to be sure, right? Um, the people I've seen driving around in Arlington today should not be in the nuclear loop. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but, but you know, how you do that really matters. And it's all these key questions about how is that information presented to the president and what level of human judgment is needed to analyze that information, and also about the safety of these these AI systems. So, um, you know, uh, 
things like right now the U.S. has a, a dual phenomenology approach about early warning systems. Okay, we've got to have information from two different uh, modalities of sensors. Should we have something similar for AI in these really mission-critical functions where there's two different independent algorithms using different training data sets um, so that we have some some redundancy there against failures or against hacking and, and data poisoning? Um, we don't have the answers, I think, in this in this article, but these are the questions that are kind of the next step that we all need to start thinking about. So, so in the article, you guys really commend the United States for its transparency around these issues. And as you're talking, and we're kind of getting into a bit of the details on this, it strikes me that it is actually pretty impressive that we know this much detail and that um, that you can come up with these policy recommendations, which can be part of an open discussion. Um, there have been suggestions, and I am guilty of as one of the people of making one of these recommendations for a joint P5 statement. Uh, on keeping a human in the loop or for getting more countries to agree to this sort of thing. So could you could you just say a bit about your your thoughts on that? And I know you get into it in the article, but like how important is it that this be a multilateral statement about a human in the loop or can the U.S. just do it unilaterally and get on with it? And that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I think everyone should unilaterally do it. That would be great. Um, but I think you're right that having some sort of multilateral agreement here is really critical, just given how important this topic is. It, it only really takes one mistake from one party to cause a cascading failure of doom and destruction. Um, and I don't think anyone really wants that accidentally. Um, so I think, and, and, and that's one of the reasons we wrote this was we were trying to pitch ways the United States could kind of unilaterally start a snowball that turns into that, hopefully. Um, but I think it's, it's critical because, I, you know, China has also, you know, at the United Nations has has made statements about how it's important to keep human judgment and control of nuclear weapons. The United States, Russia, or the United States, the UK, and France have also issued a joint statement about this. So there's the will is there for some sort of broad overall agreement about the need, this need. And so having something where everyone gets together, actively says it, puts pen to paper and agrees to it would be really, really valuable in terms of fleshing out how to operationalize some of these going forward. I don't think you're going to get some situation where you get all the ambassadors in a room at the United Nations and they come up with this document that has like clear guidance for all of all of the nuclear command and control systems. But if you start with something, you know, something at the top that can work its way down, that that's really a great step to making sure that everyone's safe together. So I, I want to reach in, Heather, because I mean, Yes, you've suggested it, but you know, don't be modest. You also talk to a number of the international actors, as you've recommended inside the uh, the contract. The, the the permanent members of the UN Security Council, U.S., Russia, France, China, and Great Britain are the P five. Um, they have an annual uh, uh, dialogue that goes on around nuclear issues. Has there been any traction on the idea of having a a, a, a P five statement related to AI and nuclear command and control, or is that another thing that's fallen victim to the great power competition we're facing. So there, there's traction. There was a lot of traction before the before 2020. Um, one of the challenges with nuclear diplomacy in general is that it's really hard to do over Zoom uh, because a lot of it is about personalities. It's about personal quirks. And a lot of these people have known each other for decades and know kind of how to 
you know, can kind of read the room a bit. And so I think the P5 process, along with other nuclear diplomacy initiatives, just really suffered from the pandemic and moving virtual. But I don't think that's the reason that the P5 haven't agreed to this. As I understood it, four out of the P5, who happened to be the four that Michael just mentioned, had said that they would be willing to sign up to a joint P5 statement. And the language that um, I had heard was under discussion was like like Michael rightly says, it doesn't get into the weeds of nuclear command and control because you're just never going to get that. It was a pretty broad, high-level statement and a commitment to keep a human in the loop. The Russians refused to refused to sign up to it. Um, I, I pushed a couple Russian uh, experts on this topic, and obviously, I wasn't satisfied with their answers. But I, I think now that the the P five process, you know, it, it's restarting. It's um, it's somewhat different than before. The Russians currently have the presidency of the P five process, but I think this would be a fantastic thing for the P five to work towards for all the reasons that Michael outlined. Heather, it, it, you could do what you want, but I, I really suggest not pushing Russians right now. They're very prone to falling out of windows. So I think you just want to be careful. Um, but um, it, it, it really is a, it, it, it raises another question, which is in the piece. I want both Michael and Paul or, or one of you to sort of respond to this, because I, I think it does get to the comfort level of different countries and different systems with automation. So you talk a little bit about the debate about the dead hand. For those of you that are really hardcore nuclear geeks, run out and get your copy of David Hoffman's fantastic book, the dead hand. It turns out the Soviet Union had a doomsday machine that basically ensured if the Soviet leadership was decapitated and we put a nuclear weapon or a conventional weapon for that matter on Moscow and they were unable to get guidance and another set of conditions were in place that suggested that uh, the United States had engaged in a, in a first strike on Russia the Russian Soviet nuclear weapons would launch at the United States. Basically, um, just like a, a, a dead hand on an explosive, um, the uh, Soviet nuclear arsenal would automatically retaliate if these conditions were met. And this, of course, horrified the United States um, after we found out about it because lots of things go wrong. Uh, and there are all sorts of things that might trigger this sort of situation. But in the article, you talk about the fact that we have American analysts who say, well, yeah, actually, we should have a dead hand, too. Right. This, this would be a great way of ensuring deterrence because people would know that they couldn't attack us and get away with it. And so I wonder how you sort of think about the national psychology and how different it is between the United States and other countries when it comes to automation. Because I've heard people say the North Koreans might be very attracted to the idea of automation, given the way their system works. The Chinese may be much more comfortable with that than the United States. Have you started to delve into that or is that enough, yet another line of thinking in the CNAS uh, uh, orchestra of activities? Well, I think there's enough evidence um, based on the, the Soviet perimeter dead hand system. And then if you look more recently at the Russian um, Poseidon or Status 6 uh, uncrewed or unmanned underwater system, that at least Russia is more comfortable with some degrees of automation in their nuclear operations that I think would, would make um, many U.S. analysts recoil um, from that, that degree of risk that you're talking about. And that is, I think, one of the things that we wanted to highlight is important, you know, as Heather was talking about in these negotiations, the Russians being in a different place, when we think about um, reaching international agreement, I think really the importance of then either getting agreement or, or some kind of uh, international norm about what's appropriate here, because just because the U.S. says, you know, that, that seems like a crazy idea, we would never do that. 
That doesn't mean that all other countries are going to see it that way. And a lot of these systems have some strategic logic to them. Like so many things in nuclear operations, there are so many things that have like sort of perverse, crazy logic. And the the dead hand is one of these where the the theory, right, was, okay, um, that, that by activating the system, Soviet leaders in a crisis could take away the pressure that they might feel to respond to some kind of ambiguous signal about whether or not there was an attack, assured that even if they were wiped out, that then the the dead hand system would enable a retaliatory strike. Um, and I think, you know, once you start talking about perimeter, there are all these caveats that you need to make. There's a lot we don't know. There's some conflicting information. Um, it's also the best reporting suggests that there was still to be a human in the loop. Even when activated, it just would be a relatively low ranking uh, than at the time Soviet officer. But I should also add, I mean, Russians has said that the system is still active today. Um, I'm going to turn things over to Heather again to talk about how much she loves Dr. Strangelove. Uh, and since there's a major element in this, but uh, for uh, regular listeners to We're All Gonna Die, you know that this is the time where we take a break and we unfortunately have to say goodbye to our uh, uh, free uh, subscribers. Um, and then we will have another uh, extended conversation for our paid subscribers. If you are a paid subscriber, thank you. And please stay tuned. If you're not a paid subscriber, please think about signing up for $5 a month um, to not only this podcast, but for the entire suite of Deep State Radio podcasts. Uh, David Rothkopf, uh, our Ubermensch, uh, is in charge of all of our um, programming. Uh, there's a very wide variety of uh, national security, foreign policy, and domestic affairs podcasts that really um, have the ear of a lot of people inside Washington, in New York, and really all over the world that we'd recommend. So you can go to deepstateradio.com and check it out. Um, but for those um, uh, that we're saying goodbye to, thanks for tuning in. And for those paid subscribers, stay tuned for a minute and we'll be right back. 